0: At home or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers Coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift. So order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code THEPAST for $5 off any gift subscription. Hello, my name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious, a podcast for kids and other people about history and stuff. And this is going to be a really boring episode because it's about April Fool's and April Fool's is not any fun. (laughs) Ha <laughs> Just kidding. It's going to be really fun. You're going to love it. But before we get started, i got to tell you about Kids Listen. It's a sweeps month. We're all doing shows about April Fool, so you can go to kidslisten.org and find more about that. Uh, I'm going to shout out to my friend's composer dad, uh, who is in the middle of a really, really intense compositional musical challenge with a man named William Shakespeare right now. It's really entertaining, and you should go check it out. Composer dad. And also our old friend, Mr. Eric from What If World. You've heard him on us. We've heard him on, you know what I mean. Anyway, Mr. Eric, What If World, you gotta check it out. We'll post links on our website. I, I was gonna tell you more about the book, but we're running, here comes Heather. She looks ready to start. So just listen to stuff about the book at the end of the show.
1: The ways people have found to amuse themselves over the centuries has always been a source of some really interesting history. No one is sure who first got bored enough to pick up an animal bone and carve some holes in it, and subsequently find out that they could control the sounds that came out of it. However, music has been a huge part of every culture ever since. The ancient Romans tended to write on things they weren't supposed to in their free time, starting a tradition that has turned into an art form unto itself, graffiti. In the 1800s more people were bored than ever. Advances had come in European society that created a new class of society. People who weren't super rich but weren't really poor either and they didn't have to work all the time just to survive. For the first time some people in cities like London had actual time on their hands with nothing to fill it and they had a little bit of extra money to spend on filling it. They came up with all kinds of interesting ways to do this. The theater, the museum, more education, magazines, and novels. Young people filled their time with the same thing they do now, fashion. Fashion has always been important to people across history who want to seem in the know. But it was changing more quickly and more often than ever before. Young women were expected to be ladies and be fashionable at home. Don't worry, they weren't going to let this stay that way forever, but that's another story. Young men, however, had the run of the city. When all of these things, fashion, free time, and all kinds of new stuff going on all over town came together, a new trend emerged. Enter the dandy. A dandy is also known as a bow, gallant, or rake. Dandies were young men who placed particular importance upon physical appearance, refined language, and leisurely hobbies pursued with the appearance of nonchalance. That is a fancy dictionary way of saying they were all about trends, how they dressed, how they talked, and what they did. They did it all with a very specific sense of humor and tried very hard to seem like they didn't really care about anything in particular. Yes, Yankee Doodle was one of these dandies. That's why he stuck a feather in his hat, to keep it stylish. Theodore Hook was one of these dandies. He was the son of a wealthy-ish composer who wrote popular songs. Believe it or not, there were popular songs before there was radio, who had been educated very well and introduced into polite society at a young age. Theodore also had a talent for music, but what he was really interested in was playing pranks to pass the time and impress all his dandy friends. By day he wrote comic operas, and by night he goofed around. He was famous in his circle for being able to go up to any old stranger on the street and manage to get himself invited over for dinner at their house. One day in 1810, when Theodore was 22, he made a bet with his friend Sam. He said that he could make any address in London the most talked about address in the city. Just give me some time, he said, one week to be exact. One week later was November 27, 1810. On that day, a maid employed by a Mrs. Tottenham of 54 Berners Street opened the door to a chimney sweep who had been summoned to the house. This was perfectly normal. The next 11 chimney sweeps who arrived after that, however, were not normal. Next to arrive was the coal cart, which brought the coal that was supposed to keep the house warm. Okay, but nobody had ordered any coal. The maid was flummoxed, to say the least. There was another knock on the door after that. It was the baker with a wedding cake. Then more bakers came with more wedding cakes. A fishmonger arrived bearing gifts of enough fish for a feast. Mrs. Tottenham had no idea that this was going on. You see, 54 Berners Street was a very nice address, and she was the lady of the house, so she just sat in her parlor and worked on her embroidery, remember, free time, while the maid took care of all the day-to-day tasks of running the household downstairs. Mrs. Tottenham did start to get an inkling that something had gone awry when a doctor showed up at her house. No one was sick. Then came a lawyer, Next, a priest came to the door. I have been called to this house because someone is dying, he said. The good news was that no one was dying, except maybe of embarrassment. Because it was far from over. One dozen pianos began to arrive, one by one. By now people were starting to crowd in front of 54 Burner Street, wondering what the heck was going on. Was it a party? Had somebody very important moved in? In 1810, as far as live entertainment went, this was as good as it got. Dozens and dozens of people flooded the streets. The whole kerfluffle came to an end when the guest of honor finally arrived. Mrs. Tottenham cried the Lord Mayor of London, Joshua Smith. I heard you were sick and needed me. I heard it was so urgent, in fact, that you could not leave your bedside, and I must come to you. An unamused and perfectly healthy Mrs. Tottenham was probably rolling her eyes around then. "'I'm obviously not sick, my lord,' she said. "'I'm only sick with worry over what could possibly be going on right now.'" And she never found out. As these sorts of things do, the whole thing died down before the end of the day, probably around when all these poor butchers and bakers and candlestick makers realized that they had been punked and that they were not going to get paid for the goods and services they thought they'd been called to this rich lady's house to deliver. But London did not forget. At the end of the year, in the annual register of all the city's goings-on, an article mentioned that a very malignant species of wit was practiced in the house of a Mrs. T, a lady of fortune, who was beset by dozens of tradespeople at one time with their various commodities. The weird thing is that no one knew who was behind this epic prank for two whole years. Theodore, dandy and professional goof that he was, knew better than to hang around and live his man-about-town lifestyle. He faked sick and traveled to Europe to get well for several months. Finally, in 1812, the responsible party came forward. Of course, it was our old friend Theodore Hook. Now I shall need those ten pounds you owe me, he said to Sam, proudly straightening the lapels of his stylish new jacket, for I have won my bet. Theodore didn't ever live this prank down. He went on to have a family and a career as a writer and with the London Postal Service. In fact, he sent the very first postcard ever in 1840, which was also a prank. The picture on the back of the card depicted caricatures of the very postal workers who would be handling the mail. Imagine their surprise. His obituary when he died briefly mentioned his work as a novelist, but spent most of the space recapping his famous Burner Street hoax. Even his kids felt the ripple effect. Sixty years later, an advertisement appeared in a magazine on behalf of a Mrs. Mary Tanner with the following message. Mr. Algernon Ashton pleads on behalf of a daughter of Theodore Hook, Mrs. Mary Tanner, who is 73, a widow in failing health and very reduced circumstances. We are not quite sure that Mrs. Tanner should expect much help because she is her father's daughter, Theodore Hook, now being chiefly remembered for his Burner Street hoax. The advertisement goes on to list Mary's numerous other relatives who were a little less infamous and might be used to make a case to help the poor lady. One hundred years later, a historian decided to write about the estates of Old London. When they got to number 54 Burner Street, they wrote that Theodore Hook's famous Burner Street hoax was perhaps considered too trivial an affair to deserve record in a serious history. But I think with that sentence in their book, they ended up recording it anyway. The spirit of Theodore Hook's famous hoax lives on in the era of food delivery service. Which, by the way, enjoyed its heyday in the 1980s. The pizza prank involved someone ordering many more pizzas than anyone could possibly eat and having them deliver to their victim's address. Many grown-ups remember hearing about this prank when they were younger. This is a little bit less easy in the era of prepaying online. It just goes to show you that the more things change, the more they stay the same, and you never know what people will do with too much time on their hands.
0: It's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month's special guest is AJ from Perry, Michigan. And as you'll see, he's a guy after my own heart.
2: Thanks, Mick, for letting me on the show. My name is AJ, and I would like to talk about Louis Armstrong, who was a famous jazz musician. He was known for the Cornette, the trumpet, he was born in New Orleans. He died and lived in New York, and he was famous for scatting before he died and was known all around the world. Bop, 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 so. Now
0: that is committing to the bit Thank you AJ If you have somebody you want to tell us about Or something, we want to hear from you You have 30 seconds You can go to thepastonthecurious.com To get the very simple instructions And ask your parents to help you do so Thank you very much bow This is not a joke It's quiz time It's quiz time It's quiz time Time, time It's that time, everybody. It's the time for quiz time. And our three questions this month are about, guess what, jokes. Question number one. At the opening of the 1956 Olympics, the mayor of Melbourne, Australia was handed what he thought to be an Olympic torch. Someone interrupted his speech to break the news that it was not the official Olympic torch. Do you know what he held in his hands instead? Oh this is embarrassing. It turns out a prankster had run with the object and made everyone believe that it was in fact the ceremonial torch, but in reality it was just a table leg. And to make things even more embarrassing for the poor mayor of Melbourne, Australia, it was topped with a pair of underwear which had been soaked in kerosene and lit on fire. Question number two. One of the most famous pranks of all time was on April Fool's Day in 1957, when the BBC ran a three-minute story about an unusual harvest in Italy. The news channel convinced lots and lots of viewers that what Italian food grew on trees? People were fooled into believing that spaghetti grew on trees. According to reports, there were a number of people who actually called the news station to find out how they could get their own spaghetti tree. Question number three. In 1895, a photo of a farmer holding a gigantic vegetable went viral and appeared in magazines and newspapers across the country of America. Can you guess what 86-pound vegetable shocked and awed American citizens? the man in the picture joseph swan was a farmer looking to sell his crops and to bring customers to an upcoming street fair he thought what better way to brag about his superior crops than get a photo of him holding an 86 pound potato in reality it was not a potato but something carved out of wood to look like a potato but most people believe the photo to be real this was long before photoshop and as a result he got a lot of requests to buy his Supergiant potato seeds. They say knowledge is power. And if that's the case, the ancient library of Alexandria could have been the most powerful place in the world 2,000 years ago. According to tales, it was an enormous, beautiful building in northern Egypt at the border of the African continent and the area known as the Middle East inside the confines of the property were brilliant scholars roaming the gardens lecture halls and study rooms most importantly there were half a million books two thousand years ago the only way to have a book was to write it or copy it by hand which might be fine with something short like the cat in the hat but imagine having to do this with a book like moby dick or war and peace for reference War and Peace has 587,287 words in it. So think of the arm ache you'd suffer from freehanding something like that. This was why the library was so incredible. It held the largest collection of books in the entire world and books that you couldn't just get anywhere. Many historians believe some of the volumes in the library were one of a kind. And besides those one-of-a-kind writings, the collection also included some important names from long ago that are still read today, like Plato and Aristotle and Homer. So you can imagine why it was such a terrible day when the library at Alexandria went up in flames. Historians and poets and artists have considered and reconsidered this moment with teary eyes for thousands of years since all of those books were lost forever it's sad to think about what we might have missed out on also interesting is the fact that no one's really sure what or who caused the fire looking at you julius caesar if you understand how hard it was to get your hands on a book because of how scarce they were and how hard they were to create then you should understand why johannes gutenberg's invention is often considered the most important invention of all time 1400 years after the terrible fire this german blacksmith created the first printing press which allowed for text to be reproduced much more efficiently and quickly it would eventually bring the written word to all corners of the globe obviously this was a game changer and it allowed for ideas and knowledge to travel farther and faster than ever before But despite the larger number of books and writings that this made possible some books remained rare and anytime something is rare it will increase in value as a result and collectors will go nuts trying to get one of their very own it could be anything from the first issue of a spider-man comic to a scarce pokemon card Or, as we'll see in this story, a riveting 154-page book from the year 1612, detailing things that were uncovered by a dig in the Belgian village of Tournai. Sounds thrilling, doesn't it? Well, the story that includes this book is actually pretty good though, so buckle up. It was 1840, and throughout Europe, there were many book collectors who took great pride in their collections each full of rare tomes of knowledge that few other humans possessed. Perhaps they would read these books in their collection and transplant the knowledge inside the covers into their own heads, but in most cases it seems more likely that they just preferred to brag about how rare any given book in their collection was and how much money it was worth. Certainly several of these men thought they might have had the most unique collection of books in the world, or at least in Europe. But that was until they heard of Count Forzas. In a wave across Europe, dozens of these collectors were surprised to receive, out of the blue, the most peculiar paper catalog, created on a printing press not too different from the one that Gutenberg had invented 400 years before. And as each of these dedicated collectors read through the pages, which had mysteriously found their way into their hands, they bubbled with excitement, intrigue. And in some cases, a greedy passion. The catalog explained that soon there was to be a rare book auction in Belgium, but not just any rare book auction, the, the rarest, rarest book, book auction.
2: auction. Gasp!
0: As they read on, they learned more. Count Fortis was an eccentric collector with an enormous passion for books. His collection was unbelievably rare. There were only 52 books in his collection but each and every book was one of a kind there was only one known copy of each of these 52 books anywhere in the world it appears that he loved the thrill of the chase when it came to acquiring a unique book he loved it so much that if he found out another copy of one of his books existed somewhere else he would destroy his own copy Watching his book burn in flames would ignite his passion again to pursue what he now believed to be the only copy of that same book. The chase was on. But his chase ended on September 1st, 1839. It would be impossible for him to chase books from the grave, which is where the collectors learned he was now. Luckily for them, he wasn't the type of fanatic to be buried with his treasure. Even more fortunate for them was the information that none of his heirs cared about his collection, or at least they cared more about the potential profit from selling it more than they cared about the books themselves. The collection of books belonging to poor dead Count Forzas was for sale. Immediately, these collectors went from not knowing anything about these books to suddenly wanting them more than anything else in the world. It's funny how that works. Of course, there was no telling how many other collectors had received their own copy of the same mysterious catalog, so any of these book collectors would have to play it cool and keep the valuable book sale secret as they traveled, suspicious of all the faces they might encounter along the way. When they arrived in the Belgian town of Binch, several of the travelers were surprised by the small size of the place peculiar that such a rich collector chose this as his home base these collectors were cosmopolitan and cultured men used to the sights and possibilities of paris and london and berlin and kiev but this place was not without its charm the townsfolk were perfectly nice to the men though one has to wonder if the travelers noticed that the belgian citizens were also a bit confused as to why so many of these foreigners suddenly appeared in their town If they did, they didn't let on, probably because they wanted to keep a bit of secrecy to their rare book mission. No telling how many other strange people in town were frothing at the mouth to buy the same books. As it would turn out, the dozens of foreign book snobs slowly came to the same conclusions independently. The catalog said that a lawyer by the name of Mr. Morlon was going to be handling the sale of the prized book collection. The cleverest and most enterprising of the collectors, or perhaps the ones least inclined to play by the rules, decided to go pay an early visit to the man at his office on Rue de la église checking over their shoulders in the still dark of dawn to make sure none of the other bibliophiles were on their trail or up to the same tricks. Several paced the streets of the town, turning corners and looking in vain for Rue de la Iglese. Their efforts were fruitless. Rue de l'Eglise? No, there is no street in our town with that name. Monsieur Moulin? There is no one who lives here by that name in Binche. No, no lawyer. Perhaps you have the wrong town. Have you looked elsewhere? Dejected, many of the men found themselves together in a tavern connected to the hotel in which most of them had found their beds for the visit. It was silly to pretend any longer they were all there for the same reason and they knew it and now they sat confused and upset what would become of the books were they somewhere else oh how each and every man feared what would become of the rare volumes in some sources another broadside paper or catalog was posted and distributed around town around this time other sources describe the men receiving the news in a more dramatic fashion suddenly As if by arrangement, a courier announced his arrival at the door and read a letter aloud to the people of the tavern, and the room fell silent and focused. The citizens of Bench, fearful of losing such a rare, unique, and wonderful batch of books, decided to pool together their funds and buy the rare book collection for themselves. This way it would remain together and in the very town in which the count had assembled it. Furthermore, it was planned to house them at the local library for the benefit of the public. Several of the collectors threw up their hands in exasperation and immediately packed their bags for home. Angry and upset, the remaining collectors figured, at the very least, it could be worth their time to just see the books before they left, even if the possibility of buying them was off the table so they planned to visit the library before leaving the Belgian town. Guess what they discovered? The town of Bench had no library. By now, they realized that they had been completely had. There was no Count Fortis, and there were no books. There was only a prank, and they had fallen for it like a bunch of trees chopped down by a lumberjack. It turns out the lumberjack of this joke was a man named René Hubert Gislet Chalon. Chalon himself was a collector of many things, so he knew exactly how to entice and appeal the others. Ironically, the joke catalog has since become one of the most valuable documents from the era, so perhaps the fake Count Fortas actually did these men a favor in the end. Do I want you,
2: oh my, do I, honey, indeed I do. Do I need you, oh my, do I, honey, indeed I do. i'm glad that i'm the one who found you that's why i'm always hanging around you do i need you oh my do i honey who found you That's why I'm always hanging around you Do I want
0: I have a Patreon sponsor to thank. Libby, this song is for you.
2: So very glad. We like stories from the past. That's just what we like to. L I B Y. My oh my. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Libby, and thank you to you for listening. I also need to thank other Patreon sponsors, including my friend Miss Lynn from the Good Words podcast. It's a podcast all about some of my favorite things. Good words. It's really great. We've been on there, and I hope to be on there again. We hope to have Miss Lynn on our show, too. I also need to thank Philip for Patreon sponsorship, and we have some shout-outs for Jackson, 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 Twyla, 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 Phoebe. Phoebe, 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 Thank you, Jackson, Twyla, Phoebe. If you would like to find out how you can help, you can go to thepastandthecurious.com or you can go to find our Patreon page. It's linked on our website as well. Or you can buy our book. The pre-sale is open for a few more days. The book is so close I can taste it, which is a really gross thing to say about a book that's about a meat shower, like meat falling from the sky. I know it sounds weird, guys, but it really, really happened and it is such a fun story. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Thanks again to all of my friends at Kids Listen, but especially this month, Composer Dad, and Mr. Eric from What If World. You can check all of those podcasts out at kidslisten.org. Now, we also have a little bit of information about the book. The pre-sale is open until the 19th of April, 2019. After that, you will be able to buy the book in various outlets. So, if you're listening in the future, great. Just go buy the book. If you're listening now, consider a pre-sale. It's a great way to help. Thanks a lot. I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and The Curious. Hope you weren't too bored. One weird day in 1876 in Bath County, Kentucky, meat fell from the sky. Meat? 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 Meat! meat. Yes, meat. And in 2019, we were weird enough to write a book about it. Not just any book, because we can't do anything normal, What we decided to do is pretend that the only surviving piece of meat in the world, which really does exist, yeah, we made him the narrator of our story. I can't wait to share it with you. It is called The Meat Shower, and it will be out in May of 2019. But the pre-sale starts the week of March 17th, 2019, you can find it at our website, com, all of our social media places, and anywhere people talk about meat. The Meat Shower. The book is still vegetarian-friendly.